Good morning. My name is Ethan. I'm the outreach pastor here at Seabreeze. Now, for the past nine weeks, we've been on a journey through the Bible. We've been taking a look at major themes in God's epic story. So in just nine weeks, we've covered thousands of years of history, and now today we arrive at an interesting point in the story in which we transition from looking at events that have taken place in the past to the end of the story that will take place in the future. Now, there are several places in the Bible that talk about the future. And today, though, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. So Revelation was written by John, who is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So that means that this book that we're going to be looking at today was written by someone who actually knew Jesus personally, someone who walked with Jesus while he was on this earth. And John was actually the only one of Jesus' 12 disciples not to be killed for his faith in Jesus. All, all the 11 other disciples were martyred in some fashion because they refused to, to not preach the name of Jesus. Now, John also preached Jesus, but instead of being killed for this, he, he got off a little easier and was sent to the, uh, into exile on the island of Patmos. So Patmos is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's uh, just off the coast of what is today uh, Turkey. And so uh, you can see it's kind of a, kind of a bleak place to, to end out your days. But this is where John was in exile, and it was here that John received a series of visions from God that make up the book of Revelation. And it's through these visions that we gain insight into how God intends to wrap up and resolve his epic story. Now, have you ever been a part of what you thought was an epic story, only to get to the end of the story and find out that it really wasn't epic at all? Uh, or maybe, maybe you've been watching a TV series and it starts off really good um, and the first few seasons are great, and then you begin to catch on to something that they're just going to drag this thing out forever. Um, so that, that for me was kind of my experience with the TV show Lost. So go, going back a few years, maybe some of you, it sounds like maybe some of you watched Lost as well. Uh, for me, I was convinced that I was watching an epic story unfold every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Uh, and then I was convinced when we got to the series finale that, that it was just going to wrap up all those many, many loose ends that there were in that series. And so maybe you loved the way that they did the ending there, but for me, the finale turned an epic story into an epic letdown. And honestly, it really made me kind of regret the 90 hours <laughs> and 45 minutes that I invested in that show. <laughs> so you see, without an epic ending, there's no epic story. Uh, it's, it's the ending that, the, that determines whether the scattered pieces of the plot all fall into place or whether they remain just random, disconnected events. It's impossible to have an epic story without an epic ending. And when we look at the end of God's story, we see that there's an epic ending. And we see that the end of the story resolves the plot. One of the ways that you know a story is not resolved is if you never know what resulted from the hero's sacrifice. And one of my all-time favorite movie heroes is William Wallace. 
in the movie Braveheart. And so in the, in the final scene there, or one of the final scenes of Braveheart, we see William Wallace, he suffers and he, he dies for the cause of the freedom of the Scottish people. And so if the movie just ended right there with the suffering and the death of the hero, the story would never really be resolved. But in the next scene, the final scene, you see that his, uh, his followers, they go out onto the battlefield, uh, inspired by his sacrifice, and they choose to fight and win their freedom. And so it's then, and it's really only then, when you see what resulted from the hero's sacrifice, that the story is resolved. And so when we look at the book of Revelation, in uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, John describes this scene in heaven in which we see the ultimate result of Jesus' sacrifice. In this scene, there are heavenly beings worshiping Jesus for his sacrifice, and here's what they say. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So here we see that the blood of Jesus was not in vain. Our hero sacrificed was, was not a waste. You know, we owed a debt for our sin that we could not pay. And Jesus, by his sacrifice, paid that debt. The, the ransom that we read about here was a successful ransom. And the story can resolve because our hero's sacrifice is vindicated in the end. Another way that the end of the story resolves the plot is by fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. You may recall, I think it was the, maybe the fourth or fifth sermon, uh, sermon in this series where we saw in Genesis 12 that God made this promise to Abraham. Here's what he said. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promised Abraham that through his descendants, people from every corner of the earth are going to be blessed. And then, in Revelation chapter 7, we see that promise fulfilled. Here's, what John, here's the scene that John describes. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So how is the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 fulfilled by what we read about here in Revelation 7? And the answer for that actually lies in one of the parts of the Bible that I think is the, the easiest to skip over, and that's, that's the genealogies. And that's the part of the Bible where you're reading along and you get to, okay, we've got so-and-so, father of so-and-so, father of so-and-so, father of so-and-so, and, you know, maybe you're like me, it's easy to just kind of skip through those parts and, until you get back with the main story, right? But one of the purposes that those genealogies serve in the Bible is to draw a direct link from Abraham to Jesus. We can see that, you know, Abraham, father of Isaac, Isaac, father of Jacob, father of so-and-so, so-and-so, until we get to Jesus. And it's through Jesus and his church that people from every corner of the earth, this great multitude that we read about here, are going to come to know God 
and be worshipers of God and be blessed by knowing God and worshiping God. So it's through Jesus that the promise to Abraham is fulfilled. Now, of course, no story is fully resolved while the enemy is still on the loose and able to inflict harm. There's no resolution if Darth Vader, the Joker, or Lord Voldemort are still on the loose. And we all know that if they're, if they're still on the loose, it's a recipe for a sequel, right? Not resolution. From the very beginning of our story, Satan has been our enemy. He was there in the, in the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam and Eve, you'll recall from earlier in this series, and he and his army have been causing havoc ever since. He's described in the Bible as a deceiver and a murderer. He actively seeks to destroy the works of God, and he actively seeks our destruction. He's clever, and he's crafty, and in Revelation chapter 20, we read of his ultimate defeat. Here's what John records. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false, and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So now, with the enemy absolutely crushed, the promise to Abraham fulfilled, and our hero, Jesus, his sacrifice, fully vindicated, you'd think that this would be a great spot for the story to end. But there's two more chapters left in the Bible. And, uh, you know, instead of ending his story with, and they all lived happily ever after, God actually gives us a glimpse into what that ever after will actually look like. So the end of the story gives us a glimpse into eternity here in these final two chapters of the Bible. And so we read about that starting in Revelation chapter 21. Here's how it begins. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now think back to the very beginning opening words of the Bible, where God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first thing in the Bible, God's creating the heavens and the earth. Now, all the way back here in Revelation, we see that one of God's final acts in wrapping up history is to create a new heaven and a new earth. And it's in this new heaven and new earth that those who have chosen to follow God will spend eternity. Now, I have to be honest, when I think about spending eternity in the new heaven and earth, it kind of comes, it's accompanying with a little sense of fear or, or anxiety just about the, the unknown of that. Uh, and may, maybe you have similar, um, similar experience when you think about that. I think this no, no doubt arises from common misconceptions about what the new heaven and earth will be like. Now, one of those misconceptions is that the new heaven and the new earth, our experience there, is somehow going to be less real than our experience here on earth. Now, when I was a, when I was a kid, my picture of heaven was a picture of kind of a lot of clouds up in the sky and, uh, and a big light, maybe a harp over in the corner somewhere, playing, whatever. Um, it, my, my picture of heaven looked a lot like this. And, you know, to be honest, the idea of spending eternity in a place like this is kind of terrifying. You know, I, I, I look at this and I think, where am I going to put my feet? Where will I stand? Where's the solid ground? Am I just going to be floating? 
how's that going to work? Uh, you know, where's the color? There's, I see two colors here. I see blue and I see white. Where are the others? I really like those other colors. Uh, it's just not a very tangible scene, right? You know, I've, I've been skydiving before, and I really enjoyed that. That was fun. I don't want to spend eternity plummeting through the clouds. <laughs> but when I think like this, I forget that God is the one making the new heaven and the new earth. And we can trust that the same God who showed his goodness by creating this world with so much beauty and so much variety is not going to rip us off with a downgraded new home for eternity. One of my favorite places on this earth is Yosemite Valley. Uh, maybe some of you have had the, the pleasure of visiting Yosemite before. I used to live in Fresno, so I could go up there on a, on a weekend or just for one day because it was so close. Uh, now, now, this scene is much more comforting to me than, than the other scene. I think that's because it's familiar. I know what it's like to actually stand with my feet on that ground and you know, feel the freezing cold Merced River going through there. Um, I, know, I know what it's like to, to see those colors. I like those colors. There's a sense of familiarity and, and reality that, that comes with this scene for me. Now, I don't know exactly what the new heaven and earth will look like, but I do know that the God who conceptualized and created Yosemite Valley and the God who conceptualized and created your favorite place to be on earth is the same God who will be creating the new heaven and the new earth. Everything that we know about beauty, everything that we know about variety, that was God's idea. And because of this, we can, we can know, we can be confident that the new heaven and earth is going to be just as enjoyable, even more enjoyable than this earth that we live in today. Another misconception about the new heaven and the new earth is that our experience will somehow be less relational, as though our, our relational nature will somehow be suppressed. It will, will be less, less, will crave less relationship or will receive less relationship. Now, I confess that kind of my default picture of relationships in heaven often looks a lot like uh, the angels in this painting by Raphael, the, uh, the Sistine Madonna. These guys, they, they just look bored, right? <laughs> they look like they're looking at their watch, waiting for eternity to be, eternity to be over, which would be very frustrating. Um, and when I, when I think about relationships in the, new in the new heaven and earth, it's easy for me to wonder, am I just going to spend eternity being bored with these weird little angel babies for company? <laughs> Which, again, is, is, is kind, of, kind of a scary thought, right? But you know, when I think like this, I forget that God is the one who's making the new heaven and the new earth. And he's the same God who showed himself to be loving by creating us with such great capacity for relationship. Our human craving for relationship didn't come to us from the cosmos over the course of millions of years. Our human, our human craving for relationship came to us from, from a God who created us in his own image. And because we're created in the image of God, relationships are and will always be at the center, at the core of who we are. When I think about relationships on earth, the first thing that comes to mind is my family. So here's a picture of my family. This is my wife, Andrea, 
my daughters, Millie and Clara, and then my two-month-old son, Richard. Now, these relationships are not perfect. They're not without challenges or conflict, just like any other of my relationships. But they're a tremendous source of joy for me. Now, imagine if all of the selfishness was stripped from my heart. How much more would that joy be multiplied? And that's what we can look forward to with all of our relationships in the new heaven and the new earth. So while I don't know exactly what relationships will look like in the new heaven and earth, I do know selfishness, no longer a factor. And that the God who created us with this tremendous capacity for relationships is the God who will be making the new heaven and the new earth. And so if if our expectations are Raphael's angels for company, then our expectations are far too low. Now, as great as we can expect our relationships in the new heaven and earth to be, it pales in comparison to what we read about in these next verses. Here's what John says in uh, chapter 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So in the new heaven and earth, we can expect not not only to have improved relationship with each other, but to have unhindered relationship with God. God will live with us. Now, if you've chosen to follow Jesus and accepted his sacrifice as payment for your sins, then you have a relationship with God. Still, the fact remains that we live in a fallen world, you know, because of the, the curse that we looked at earlier in this series. You know, we haven't seen God face to face, and our relationship with him is complicated by our continued struggle with sin. Paul described it like this. He said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now in Paul's day in ancient times, mirrors were made from polished metal. So they would just, the metal would be really shiny, maybe bronze or something like that, and you would use that to see your reflection. So Paul is, Paul, Paul is acknowledging that uh, while, his, while his relationship with God is absolutely real, it's not as clear as it will be one day when God makes himself known fully. You know, my wife and I, we dated long distance for nine months before we got engaged and married. And from that experience, I can tell you that there's nothing like face-to-face. We would, uh, we would talk on the phone, and we would, use, we would use FaceTime. And I'm actually really grateful for those mediums because I'd probably still be single without them. Um, we actually really got to know each other well over those mediums. But it was nothing like being face-to-face. When we were face-to-face, all kinds of barriers were removed. You know, there was no perfect emoji that I could text my wife that could replace facial expressions. Uh, It didn't matter if the Wi-Fi signal where we happened to be was strong or weak. Um, We could still communicate. We could go on a date. We could go see a movie, dinner, a walk, whatever. All kinds of barriers were, were broken down. Now, while we're on earth, there are just going to be ways in which our relationship with God is similarly limited. Make no mistake, our relationship with God is absolutely real, but we can greatly anticipate and we can long for the day when we get to be with him in the new heaven and the new earth because we know that what we experience in our relationship with God here on earth is just a taste 
of what it's going to be for all of eternity. Revelation 22.4 says that we will actually see God's face. This is something that we'll never be able to do on this earth. And it's when we see God face to face that we're going to fully understand the words of the psalmist who writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the next verse here, we receive more of a glimpse into eternity. Here's what John records. He, that is God living with us, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In the new heaven and the new earth, the curse is removed. That's what this verse is describing. It's describing that curse that's been there since ever since Genesis chapter 3 is gone. And so that means pain, gone. Sorrow, gone. Suffering, gone. And now it's hard for us to even imagine a world without these things because it's all that we've ever known. All of our lives, there's been a mixture of, of good and bad. It's hard to even think, what would it look like if those two were separated and it was only, only the good, right? But just for a moment, imagine with me what it would be like to live in a world with no more conflict, toil, arthritis, cavities, addiction, war, medical bills, acne, ingrown toenails, headaches, fever, slander, thorns, hate, loneliness, cancer, boredom, depression, surgery, lies, pride, fear, diaper rash. That's a reality for my family right now. Guilt, grief, and then finally, as we're going to see here in the next verse, a world with no more death. So let's look at what God has to say about that in verses 6 and 7. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In the new heaven and the new earth, there is life without end. There will be no more cemeteries, no more funeral homes. Jesus' death didn't pay for us to live an additional 70 or 80 years with God. His death paid for us to spend eternity, all of eternity, with God in heaven. His death paid for us to drink from the spring of the water of life. Now, the reality is that this unending life is for those who have chosen to follow God. The next verse describes a very different future for those who choose to cling to a life apart from God. Let's look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, or the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this verse is describing hell. And when I read this verse, it's both sobering and humbling. It's sobering because it's a heavy reality to think of anybody spending eternity apart from God in hell. And it's humbling because it's a reminder that all of these good things that we've been talking about and reading about that God has stored up for those who have chosen to follow him, they don't, they don't spring from anything good that we have done. 
The fate of those described in verse 8 is the fate that we all deserve. We have all rebelled against God, and we all deserve to spend eternity apart from him. What separates our fate from theirs is that we have bowed the knee to Jesus and trusted in his death to pay for our sins. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says this. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's nothing that we've done. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so it's from a stance of humility and gratitude that we look at this final point. And that is that the end of the story provides direction for today. We saw earlier how God is building a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we just saw how not everybody is going to be a part of that multitude. So it is our privilege then to be able to partner with God to build the multitude. Each of us who is a follower of Jesus is so because someone has told us about Jesus. Someone and probably many people have sacrificed their time, their energy, so that we could be a part of the multitude, so that you could be a part, so that I could be a part of it. And so now we have the opportunity to ask ourselves, am I playing a role in anyone else joining this multitude? This doesn't usually happen by accident. It usually requires a plan and effort. Uh, there, there have been times in my life where something has just kind of fallen into my lap and I've been able to play a part in someone joining this multitude without really any planning or, or intentionality on my part. But that's, that's definitely not the norm. Uh, the norm is that it requires uh, a plan and, uh, and, and effort. But we can know that when we choose to put our time toward building this multitude, we put our time, our energy, our resources, we know that we're choosing to build something that will last in the new heaven and the new earth and not fade away. There's another way that we can build something on this earth that will last in the new heaven and the new earth, and that is to build treasure in heaven. So Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, I don't know exactly what treasure in heaven will look like, but this verse makes it very clear that whatever is built up on this earth is going to fade away. And whatever is built up in heaven is something that's going to endure forever. So it makes sense then to ask the question, how do I build up treasure in heaven? Well, we build up treasure in heaven by choosing to plug our lives into God's epic story rather than trying to use our lives to build our own story. One of the ways that we do that is by learning and applying God's word, finding out what pleases God in his word and doing it. So we've just taken a 10-week trip through the Bible. And what we've done is, is a lot like taking a helicopter ride through Yosemite Valley. Uh, doing so would give you a fantastic perspective on what that park is like. You would know how the big pieces related to one another. You would know here's the Merced River and where it relates to Half Dome and El Capitan and the falls, Bridal Veil and Yosemite Falls. Uh, but you know, 
even though you'd have this incredible perspective, you really wouldn't know the park in detail until you got down on foot and started hiking one of the many trails that there are in the park. Now, there's more trails there in Yosemite than you could hope to cover in a single day or a week or a month. But to really get to know the park, you just have to strap on your boots and start hiking, right? Now, the same, the same is true with God's word. Having a flyover is fantastic. Seeing how those big pieces fit together is fantastic. But rather than be satisfied with the flyover, let your curiosity be piqued to get into the details of God's word daily and really uncover what God has to teach you in God's word, in, in his word. Now, there are far more books in the Bible than you could hope to cover in a single sitting, right? Far more content there than you could digest over a small period of time. And like trails, some are going to be easier for beginners, and others you may honestly really want to work up to before, before you attempt them. You know, there's, uh, there's some trails in Yosemite where you go to the parking lot, you park your car, you get out, and you walk on a, walk on a paved road, and after a few hundred yards, you arrive at a waterfall. And so it's an incredibly rewarding thing at the end of that hike. And so, you know, if you're new to the Bible, the book of John is a great place to start. It's a great trail to start on. Uh, it's a very rewarding book to read. And uh, it's basically, it's written by the same John who wrote Revelation. And it basically covers Jesus's life, what he did and what he taught. So if you're looking for a place to begin, that's a great place to start. But whether you're new to God's word or whether you've been reading it for many, many years, I invite you as we wrap up this series to learn more about how you can be a part of God's epic story and build something that will last. I invite you to pick up God's word and start filling in the gaps. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you have revealed to us in your word. Uh, we thank you that you have uh, given us this last book of the Bible, that you've given us this glimpse. Uh, you were not obligated to do that for us. You did that, I think, out of your goodness to us, uh, to encourage us and to give us direction for, for today, God. So I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that um, we, you would remove any dread or anxiety, God, about what eternity will look like from our hearts, and you would replace it with anticipation and, and, uh, and joy and longing, God. Uh, Father, I, uh, I also ask that you would just help us to make the most of the time that we have here, that we would invest ourselves in bringing other people along with us, that we would really get to know your word and learn how to please you, Father. Um, God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.